Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Anyway, so my name is Jason Murphy, and this is Wednesday night. This is Against the Stream. Glad you guys are here. Those of you in the room, those of you on the Zoom. And um, yeah, we, let's see, right now we have Monday and Wednesday regular Dharma classes uh, in this uh, in this room. Could we pull the windows open just a little bit more, get a little breeze in here? Nothing worse than having like a stale room and then try to meditate. Everyone's just like, oh. <laughs> nodding. That might happen anyway, but we're going to try to do what we can to, you know, support that not happening. Hello, hello. So uh, in the spirit of community, one of the things that we really like to do uh, here, especially now that people are live, um, is have just a little cushions here. If you want to grab some cushions, feel free Um, to have people just build a little bit of community. So. The idea is to, we're going to take a few minutes, we'll break up into some small groups and just, you know, just share a little bit who you are, where you come from, what brings you here. If you don't want to say where you come from, that's fine too. Just, you know, a little bit of kind of what brings you here. Is this uh, the first time you've been to a meditation group like this? Have you been coming for a while? What, What keeps you coming back? What brought you here in the first place? Something like that. So what I, uh, and I'm going to break you guys, I'm going to attempt, and hopefully I'll be able to do it, break you guys into groups on the Zoom so you can do it at, at the same time. So what I think is probably groups of three, and my encouragement is for you to turn towards someone that you didn't come with, that you don't actually know, um, to, you know, actually have this be an authentic experience. Now, some of you might have just thought, I'm going to leave the room right now. <laughs> Like all of a sudden I have to go to the bathroom, you know, I'm going to go have a smoke and go walk to the store, you know, um, I want to invite you to stay in the room and yeah, just turn, just turn toward someone that you don't know, you haven't come with, just kind of share a few minutes, just a little bit about what brings you here. <laughs> go right ahead. I'm trying to get you guys. I was like, I'm Yeah, 
All right. Thank you. I love it. I love the energy. I miss that so much when I was, I mean, not that I, I totally appreciate you folks. <laughs> but when I was sitting here by myself, just me and Brian. The energy is different, you know, when there's people in the room excited to try something new or to come to a practice that maybe has saved your life. It's definitely my story. This, uh, this practice has saved my life quite literally and opened my mind and my heart. Um, when I was 16 years old, I was forced I wasn't forced. I was strongly suggested to learn meditation. And uh, I'd like to say it stuck right away, but it didn't. But I, I, but it, it planted some seeds. Um, so whatever brought you here, if, you know, maybe you saw, you know, a talk or read a book, whatever your inspiration for being here tonight, um, I so appreciate that, you know, and that um, 
against the stream is a meditation center that is all that's really about community it's about connection it's about can we do this together ultimately we have to come to our own salvation our own uh, clarity our own insight we have to do the work um, but it helps when we're doing the work together you know in uh, <clears throat> in Buddhism in the kind of Buddhist psychology in the Buddhist language there's a word that's called Kalyanamita and Kalyanamita means spiritual friend and so you just met a spiritual friend and um, Noah who is the founder of Against the Stream has been a spiritual friend of mine for you know 35 years so yeah and we primarily um, teach from a Buddhist lens. And I have a uh, orientation that is kind of Buddhist psychology, uh, both studying East-West psychology <coughs> and my own personal practice for many years. And, you know, neuroscience has done a lot to legitimize a 2,560 year old teaching. Um, so just in the last, you know, 20 years has uh, neuroscience Stanford and UC San Diego and MIT and Harvard have been going, Oh yeah, this meditation stuff is really changes the brain and creates compassion for people, allows for healing. It even heals the physical ailments, you know, so there's a lot to be said for what's practiced here. And that there's three jewels or three gems that we talk about as a uh, foundation for the practice. And that's the, the Buddha. So the, the, not just the statue, but the historical Buddha, this man, not a god, not a you know saint or anything, although there is some terminology some scholars call him the rebel saint which we like of course <laughs> and that's a good moniker um, but the teachings of the buddha the historical buddha um, that lived siddhartha gautama was his name we call him sid just for short and you know and then the dharma which is what the buddha taught uh, which is what i'll be you know, expounding upon a little bit. And then Sangha, which is this community. And wherever there is a community. So it's good to connect, you know. So wherever you go, if you're traveling or you're, you, know, you find um, a Sangha, a community of spiritual friends. That's kind of, these, these are th called the three gems found in Buddhism. And we do, we sit in meditation here. I say that kind of with a little, a little bit of a joke because not all Buddhists sit in meditation. Some are very scholarly and they want to expound on the theories and we do some of that too. But mostly um, we find in the Thai forest or the Theravadan tradition, 
the word Theravadin uh, means the path of the elders or the narrow path. Sometimes it's, it's called. And um, so we believe really strongly in the practicality and the experiential uh, experientiality, let's say, of, of the Dharma. So we're going to sit in meditation. Is there anyone in the room that's new to meditation? Cool. So we'll do a 45 minute silent <laughs> meditation. No instruction necessary. You guys all got it. Um, of course, I like to talk too much for that. So no, but uh, we will. We'll do. I'll do a lightly guided meditation. So finding a posture that's workable, that's sustainable. One where you can be relaxed and alert. It's helpful to allow the eyes to close. And if having your eyes closed doesn't feel comfortable, then perhaps allowing them to be downcast. And just settling in. Perhaps opening to the comings and goings of sound. Sounds outside the room. Sounds inside the room. Just allowing sound to maybe shift to the background of our attention. We're not trying to shut it out. We're not trying to evaluate it as good or bad. It's just sound. And allow the attention to rest here in the body. Feeling the connection, perhaps to the floor or the chair, cushion.
if you haven't already, establishing some connection with the experience of breathing. Where can you most easily come into contact with the breath? The mind is still doing its thing, thinking, planning, remembering. It's not a problem. It's just what the mind does. Similar to sound. And we allow the thinking mind to just be in the background of our attention. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out. Know that you're breathing out. Of course, whenever you recognize that the attention has wandered off, with a sense of friendliness or kindness with the mind, just aiming the attention back. Reconnecting with the experience of breathing. 
Again and again, recognizing whenever the attention wanders off, perhaps a sound or a thought or a story or a sensation in the body takes us away off to the history or the mystery and then with that sense of friendliness or kindness with the mind aiming the attention back connecting again and again to this present time experience of breath, body, without judgment or criticism, breathing in, Know that you're breathing in. Breathing out. Know that you're breathing out.
We'll end with a teaching from the Buddha. Master your senses. What you taste and smell, what you see and hear. In all things, be a master of what you do and say and think. Be free. Are you quiet? Quiet the mind, quiet your body. By your own efforts, waken yourself, watch yourself, and live joyfully. Follow the truth of the way, reflect upon it, make it your own. Live it. It will always sustain you. Master your senses.
for the last few moments, let go of effort. Let go of trying. Just be.
Neural meditation is complete without a siren. So maybe take a moment and just kind of reflect what was that experience like for you? Pleasant? Agonizing? Neutral? Sleepy? Boring? Enlightening? Exciting? Torture? <laughs> Freeing? So in, I would open up for any kind of questions about the instruction, about the practice, either online, you can raise your hand. I think it's under reactions or participant. And uh, if you're in the room, you can raise your live hand. Great. Hi. Hi. I'm Lilia. Hi, Lilia. Thank you so much. I've been meditating for a long time, many, many decades, and one of the things I noticed tonight, because I haven't meditated in a couple of years, actually, and I, I just noticed that, you know, when things are going well, when your life is good, it's really easy to just be still, mm. feel good in your body, mm. drop your mind, whether it's dropping it into your heart or dropping it wherever. It's easy to let go. But like when the shit hits the fan and the rug gets pulled out from underneath you and you're full of anger or resentment or fear or you can just go on and on with all the adjectives, um, negativity, it really is torture to just sit with yourself. And I know I don't want to take up too much time, but I know for myself what's saving me these days mm is almost 24-hour distraction of myself. Mm -hmm. Constantly listening to music, constantly listening to podcasts, going to meetings sometimes twice a day. And it's like, now I know why I haven't meditated in two years. Because it's hell mm -hmm. So thank you. <laughs> For returning you back to the hell realm? <laughs> um, or for allowing you to see? Yeah. Of course, I didn't do it. You did it yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's just when everything stops, mm -hmm. what's there? And if what's there is love and forgiveness and compassion and peace and connection to God or higher power, then it's blissful. Mm -hmm. 
it's not, it's not. Right. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. But one thing that was blissful is that he lived for four years, literally to the next building in New York City in Greenwich Village. So oh. I was 88 Washington Place and I was 82. I lived there my entire life. Wow. So that's, a, that's incredible. That's, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I met tonight. Just met tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just turned in. Kaliana Mita. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Basically what you shared is in my view, the essence of why I fucking practice, yeah. you know, it's like putting, it's like a piggy bank, you know, you're just all the pleasant meditations, which, you know, I don't know, there's more, I guess more now than there used to be. But it, when I first closed my eyes, when I first began to meditate, uh, it wasn't blissful. It wasn't peaceful. It wasn't, I wasn't friendly to myself, you know, and the, and it was the, the turning toward, which is exactly what the Buddha is asking you to do, pleading actually. In the Buddhist teaching, he's pleading with us to learn to sit with that which is uncomfortable. And you said it perfectly. We're so more and more. We're so distracted. We're so used to being busy and this phone and this email and this, you know, going to this class and doing this and, you know, cleaning the house and making dinner and watching TV and, you know, and all of that is fine. It is fine. And sometimes it's skillful to be like, this is so fucking heavy that I need a distraction for a while, but not as a lifestyle. Now that's not Buddha, that's me saying fucking survival skill 101, you know? <laughs> and yet, still finding time every day to sit with the pain, the emptiness, the discomfort, there's this teaching from, from the Buddha that, um, oh, how does it go? It's kind of like the man, it, it's actually, it's a metaphor. The man, that, cro that uh, woman, that rose you know, easily across the lake. No wind, no, you know, sleet, no adversity, no, you know, against the current, you know, with the current gets to the other side, but hasn't earned anything, hasn't learned anything. That the, it's, it's the, the struggle to get to the other side that we learn from. And it's when the, you know, people often talk about good and bad meditation. Oh, I had a good meditation. And I, then I started to do this more and more. Like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, what does that mean, a good meditation? I didn't have any thoughts. My heart was overjoyed. You know, was it, what was a good meditation? What was a bad meditation? Oh, my mind was really busy. I was, you know, not in my body, you know, whatever it was. I was fully distracted. Either one recognizing, oh, this is what's happening in the mind. 
that's bringing insight. And when we recognize, oh, wow, my mind is doing whatever the fuck it wants, usually replaying some old story or rehearsing some future scenario, when we recognize, oh, the mind is like this, the heart feels like this, and that that, I don't know, in my own practice, that is what helps to kind of sustain and gain a little bit more insight into the habits of mind that um, are really running the show until we decide to do something about it. And that's what showing up here is about. Oh, oh, my mind's out of fucking control. I remember the first year I meditated, that was pretty much my assessment. Oh, my mind is out of control. I can't sit for more than 10 minutes. I'm super fidgety. I feel like there's like, you know, an onslaught of bullies just like attacking me. It was like sixth grade, you know? <laughs> and then over time, the bullies got quieter. You know, the agitation in the body settled. So keep rowing. Any other thoughts, questions, please? You mentioned um, Buddhism or meditation changing, changing your life. And mm. I, I can say the same thing about my own, my own life. I learned how to meditate 17 years ago. And it happened in a little uh, yoga studio in Brooklyn. Go yoga. That's my and stereo! What's happening? Oh, oh my god! <laughs> okay, how many people lived in Brooklyn? <laughs> <laughs> Carlos! Yes, Juan Carlos. How are you, love? That's oh, so crazy. Yeah, yeah. Please, please continue. Yes, yeah, so I'm gonna, you know, just appreciation. I mean, just this, you know, serendipity. And, um, I was actually just talking to my friend Ethan, Ethan McDermott, who, who was the one who used to teach at the yoga. Uh, he's, he's like my number. My number one Kalyamita, and without without that essence of the truth that I have experienced directly through Buddhism, um, I would be dead probably too. <laughs> Definitely, you know, I've always had a I always joke that I had a foot on the yoga mat and the other foot in the back house. Uh, like my life has always been really contested. But it's good to be here now. It's good to see you. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else in the room? In moments like this, um, in my mind, I go, okay, do we go with what's in the room? <laughs> or do we stick to the fucking script? Not that I have a script, but I do have a topic that I was going to talk about. But it's really all related because it's all dharma. The word dharma, or in some schools it's called dhamma, means the truth in nature in this nature, in that nature. The truth found in nature, the truth revealed 
in nature. So it's all Dharma. One of my um, favorite teachings from Ajahn Chah, who is the kind of Grand Poobah of the Thai forest lineage, which we are part of, uh, is everything is teaching us. Everything is teaching us all the time. The difference is, where is our mind at? Are we receptive? And that's what I love about this, uh, master your senses. I'll just read it again real quick. It's from the Dhammapada, known as the eloquent or poetic teachings of the Buddha. Master your senses, what you taste and smell, what you see and hear. In all things, be a master of what you do and say and think. Be free. Are you quiet? Quiet your body. Quiet your mind. By your own efforts, waken yourself. Watch yourself and live joyfully. Follow the truth of the way. Reflect upon it. Make it your own. Live it, and it will always sustain you. So I'll open up for some more questions and reflections in a bit. What I've been doing over the last several weeks is really kind of unpacking the uh, foundational teaching of the Buddha, known as the Four Noble Truths. Almost anything that is called Buddhism, uh, that actually is Buddhism, has the Four Noble Truths within it. It's the, um, after the Buddha became enlightened, awakened, He was like, all right, now how do I convey, you know, what I've learned, what has become clear to me? How can I put this in a way that people will understand it? And he actually wasn't convinced in the beginning. He was like, I don't know, man, this shit was tough, you know. And then out of compassion and um, some, you know, the clarity, the insight, he began to say, okay, maybe there's few, and there's this famous quote, you know, and this is what, why we call this place against the stream, because one of the ways that he talked about it later, as he's talking to other students and monks, once it kind of caught a little bit, you know, I want to also, I want to say like, you know, more people follow the Dalai Lama now than followed the Buddha in his time. That the Buddha was, you know, and Buddhism wasn't even called Buddhism until two, three hundred years after the Buddha died. So there was this guy with robes and a shaved head. And, you know, in India, they're, you know, they're called sadhus or, you know, they, they, they're renunciates. They give it, they give up the householder life to go spiritual seeking. And this is what he saw. 
And then he, over time, became one. And then that, and then finding the truth, meaning um, the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. And then, so he, but, but he, when he was contemplating, he was like, oh no, this is against the stream. It is so difficult, so arduous. It takes so much effort to go against the natural flow of greed, hatred, delusion. That we're so conditioned from birth, and some would say from past lives, that we're so conditioned towards greed, hatred, and delusion that to really find freedom from that, we have to go against the stream, against the flow. Do what is difficult, sitting with the discomfort, sitting with the heartbreak, sitting with the loss, transforming the mind. The mind that for some can be your greatest enemy can also become your greatest ally. It's the same mind that frees you. So this kind of master your senses is that it's kind of a, it's a bit of a homage to that idea. So then he was like, all right, okay. These homies that I was kicking it with were close. They were a little, still a little delusional, but they were close. And so I'm gonna go and talk to them. So he got up, so he was motivated to get up out of his blissful meditative eight days of chilling in this, who knows, you know, what, what uh, is called pity. Pity is like tranquil, peaceful, joy um, and then walked to where his friends were and he gave the first teaching uh, which is known as turning the wheel of the dharma or something like putting in motion the wheel of the dharma that's actually the translation i think so in the so I've been talking about the, the Four Noble Truths. I'm not going to really go over each of them in depth because I've just done that for the last three weeks. And we're on the, the Fourth Noble Truth, which is the good news, really. It's the remedy. It's the prescription. It's also the like, and now let's get to work. But in brief, and I actually want to just read a little piece. The Buddha acknowledged that there is inherent, there is an inherent problem or dis-ease in this realm, being the human realm. Right? The Buddha acknowledged that not all life is suffering, but there is inherent suffering in this world. He was specific in saying birth is suffering. Aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not obtaining what one wants is suffering. Obtaining what one doesn't want 
his suffering. So, and then he kind of further broke this down into say, actually clinging is suffering. And what is it that we cling to? Material form, what are known as the five aggregates. Material form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations or fabrications. These are what some of the things we cling to. Consciousness, we cling to. And these things cause suffering if clung to. He also pointed out that these aggregates, these five aggregates, are what make up what we are. In, in kind of saying, we're actually nothing more than these five aspects. Material form, our physical body, our sense faculties, and all material objects in the external world. Matter. Cells. Corks, which is below atoms. I don't know what's below corks. Have they figured that out yet? Feelings, the affective feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then in the psychological, more articulation of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which we can get really hung up on. Have you noticed that? Get really hung up on feelings. Even uh, the attachment to I want to feel happy, I want to feel joy, I want to feel whatever it is. Or I don't want to feel sadness or despair, depression, anger. Perception, discerning uh, the qualities of things, including kind of recognition, memory. So perception, clinging to perception. What is this? How can we cling to perception? I have an idea of how I think this whole COVID fucking thing should have gone. <laughs> right? right? And if other people would just agree with my way of thinking about it, then we'd all be way better by now. Right? So that's a perception. Sometimes I call it the perceptual database. We all have a database. This database is from uh, experiences, all the experiences, every experience, the little Rolodex in the head. Those of you who are old enough to remember Rolodexes, <laughs> right? I'm barely old enough, but my grandfather had one. Rolodex, actually I had one in my first job. But um, <laughs> the Rolodex in our head that when we, when our senses perceive there's a identification with it in some ways. Perceptual database, which often leads to some form mental formation. Sometimes I like to use the word fabrication, mental fabrications. These are the stories. These are our histories. These are our, um, I am this way. Right? I believe this. Mental fabrications based on the other thing. And then the last, um, oh, let me just read the definition of, uh, of mental formations. 
all wholesome and unwholesome mental factors, such as compassion, volition, and attachment. And then consciousness. Tricky. We're trying to be so conscious, aren't we? That's part of our attainment. What is the reality of consciousness? It's just sense contact and the experience of sense contact. One of uh, our teachers, one of my teachers, Ajahn Samedo, says consciousness is the reality of here and now. It's just the reality of here and now. We have moments of consciousness. It's not sustainable over time. It's like a, like a flame-like process. We see a flame, you light a candle, you see a flame. It looks kind of solid, it moves a little bit with the air, but it looks kind of solid, right? But it's actually, same thing is true with our consciousness. Always changing, never static. But we believe it is. Our mind is that way too. But we perceive this kind of connected stream based on these experiences, and then we cling to them. Okay, first, no, that's first noble truth. I guess maybe I got a little lost. Second noble truth is that there's a cause. And what's that cause? Selfish, self-centered craving, clinging, attachment, tanha. The word tanha means uh, unquenchable thirst. So for you alcoholics in the room, maybe you understand that. The unquenchable thirst. The third noble truth is that there is an end. We can put an end to suffering. The, the way it's often described is the cessation of suffering is possible. It's good news. Prognosis. It's a good prognosis. The fourth noble truth, there is a path leading to the end of suffering. Get to work. If you want. Is ignorance really bliss? It feels like bliss at times. I've been pretty damn ignorant in my life and felt like, ah, pretty carefree, you know. It's when there is, when we come to some kind of awakening, some kind of consciousness. It's not blissful, but it's life-changing. So when I said earlier, this practice saved my life, because it helped me to wake up a little bit to the reality of things. Just a little bit. I mean, I'm not claiming to fucking levitate or anything, you know. And then, so there's a pretty, there's a, prescriptive what is the path and it's i think it's important to i mean sometimes it's called the doctrine which i hate that it's like such a bad like dry like british scholarly (laughs) translation which is actually probably where it came from many of the um early translations of the of pali which is the language that uh the teachings of the buddha were first written down in maybe three or four hundred years after the buddha died were then translated by these kind of british scholars 
and they didn't really have any, they were just linguistics, you know, they didn't have any knowledge of the practice. And so, you know, also it just could be my like nonconformist ethos. I don't like a doctrine. I'm not teaching a doctrine. I like the, the term path. So what is the path? Well, it's laid out. It's known as the Eightfold Path. And it starts, you know, I'll, I'll break it down. Which one is it? This one. I'll break it down. Uh, and then what I'm going to do over the next eight weeks is go over each one and unpack it. Right, so I'll kind of do an overview, and then we'll talk about practical and, you know, just, I guess, practical ways that we can kind of work with it. So the first, so first of all, it's called the eight-fold path. So they're not, it's not linear. As a matter of fact, this is another kind of British scholarly kind of misunderstanding. The Buddha, to me, had a systemic thinking process and delivery. Now, systemic versus linear. Eastern, non-Western thinking practices are systemic, most often. Think of languages, French, Spanish, Italian. They're very systemic. They're very kind of all-encompassing, right? Um, and folded together, meaning folded together. And um, a very Western mind is very linear. Anglo, whatever you want to call it, can be very uh, Western European linear thinking. A, B, C, D, list. Step one, step two, step three, right? The Buddha's intention was not to, in my, my view, the Buddha's intention was not to go and then you do step one and then you do step two. It's, it's, that's where they're called the eight folds because they fold into each other and then more and more is revealed. But we'll kind of, so I, okay, so there's that. And then uh, another way of thinking about it is that really there's only three major groups of, t of folds. And they are uh, ethics, live in an ethical way. And then that's broken down. And then concentration, meditation, sometimes the word used is bhavana, which means uh, mental development, which I love, actually. I love the word bhavana. But it, it means training, training the mind. Right? And then the third is panya, which means wisdom. The wisdom gained from living ethically and training your mind, right? Not external wisdom, internal wisdom. And the other thing is that, like, it's already there. It's just obscured, right? We're so distracted. We're so uh, lost. Sleepwalking. And it's not our fault. That's the other thing. The Buddha does a great job, I think, of being like, you know, I have the same mind, although my mind has changed now, but I get it. I get it. 
We were fucking born this way. It wasn't our fault. Born into these human bodies that don't like pain, that like pleasure, <laughs> that want more, want less, want, want, want. And then we've built a whole society that's like just giving us that message. Avoid pain, avoid anything unpleasant, stick with only what's pleasant, only what feels good. Believe that you can be happy all the time because that's a myth, unobtainable. Perfection isn't real, but we're, you know, we're sold this bill of goods, right? Literally sold. This new, although this isn't new, it's from 2018, but this will make me happy. This will organize my life in a way that everything will work out just perfectly. And then I will not have stress or be anxious or have problems. Right? So just buy the new iMac, whatever. Or whatever it is, right? Insert whatever it is. Okay. So the first of the folds is right view or wise view which is kind of a bummer actually because right in the beginning the buddha's saying all right so you got to recognize that you're fucking delusional okay <laughs> and um it's a good thing that it's a fold and not a task right but it's like we have to come out of delusion. It's really about breaking denial. And if you think about what it takes to break denial, usually um, some kind of incomprehensible demoralization, some kind of pain that is so um, painful, and the, either the aversion or the attachment to it, then it wakes us up. Oh. Like having a near-death experience or someone really close to you dying tragically and quickly or something like that. You know, some kind of wake up. And then to be able to kind of reorient yourself. So it's coming out of denial that we're suffering. And then also from the Buddhist perspective, taking into account what often is known as the three characteristics of existence, the truth about, or the reality of dukkha suffering, which I've been talking about. And then the reality of impermanence, right? Anicca, that which arises passes away nothing lasts but we do believe that don't we that things are supposed to last right especially when it's pleasant or enjoyable and the third characteristic is um it's called anatta which means uh no fixed or permanent self so the, the self that we identify, this is me, this is who I am, is actually a delusion. 
constantly changing, changed over time. You know, there's all kinds of science that points to this all the time now. There is no place where we have been able to find a self in the brain or in the body that's like living like this. Oh, there's this thing that's like a self. And then the rest is all changing, but not, not this thing. Right? Not this little group of cells in the brain, nothing. I thought they were close because we have perception. I can't remember exactly where it is. If it's like right up here, like it's like frontal. I can't remember if it's right or left, but we have most of our kind of perceptive kind of ideas of who we think we are, uh, are developed in a, a cluster of, uh, I don't know, neurons in the brain that I don't know about because I'm not actually a neuroscientist. Although I play one on TV. <laughs> so there's that. And then within, so, the, there's other aspects of, of wise view that I'm actually all kind of sess out a little bit more next week before I really get into the other pieces, because I do think it's really important to talk about. But let me just kind of run through these three, we're often called the three baskets, ethics. It's actually the, again, British stuffy morality is what it's the, often referred to as I don't like that I like ethical integrity that's my favorite way of, kind of talking about it because really that's it's presented by the Buddha in the Buddha's teachings but then the Buddha in every chance he gets says uses this phrase almost every time he was like talking to somebody and that person was skeptical he would he would say um, Adi Pasiko Adi Pasiko See for yourself. Don't believe a fucking word I say. My translation, of course. See for yourself. Is this practice leading to less suffering in your life? Yes or no? But don't just try it one time and then figure it, you know, oh, no, I, nope, nope, didn't lead to my suffering. Matter of fact, cause me more. Stick with it for a little while. Dedicate yourself. The Dalai Lama says, you know, evaluate your practice in 10-year increments. Because we get so, because we're so, you know, in a hurry. We want to rush to resolve. I want enlightenment. I want enlightenment now. <laughs> you know. Apparently, some of the Zen folks say that that can happen. Like that you can have these kind of you know, aha, enlightenment experiences. Apparently it happened at the time of the Buddha all the time. Like the Buddha would like, give a teaching and people go, oh. But, you know, now we have several generations of distraction. It makes it harder, perhaps. All right, so within the ethical, known as sila, within the ethical integrity group, there is wise, the translation is right. And there's some good justification for why it's considered right. But again, the right versus wrong. I, I, I like the term wise. Wise speech. So what does it mean to have wise speech? Whatever the, it is, I'm not very good at it. But really it means like not, like don't talk shit about people. 
Don't talk about people when they're not present. Um, don't say anything that will um, admonish another person. False speech, slander, harsh speech. I want to have a little hard time with. Useless <laughs> words. I come from an Italian family. We're all from New York, from the Bronx, though, not Brooklyn. But this idea of like, well, actually, so harsh speech, and we talk about this a lot. Like I cuss, obviously, and teach the Dharma. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, different if I'm cussing at you for a reason that is about harming. It's different than just using a, a fuck or a shit to make a point, you know, in my opinion. There's absolutely some really way too Buddhist Buddhists that are like, that is not wise speech. <laughs> it says right here. <laughs> but it's okay. That's just a perception. So wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, these are the folds, right? And then from there, moving into wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, which leads us to wise understanding and wise thought. And this is known as the Eightfold Path. And the idea here is we come into it, let's see, what's my favorite way of describing it? And then I'll open up for some questions or whatnot. Well, it's not my way, actually. It's uh, the a description that the Buddha gave. Um, and the title of Noah's dad's first book, which is the first book I ever read on Buddhism, called A Gradual Awakening. It's great. It was, born, it was written the year I was born. Um, There's a teaching from the Buddha as as if no, as the the depth of the ocean starts at the shore, so does the understanding of the Dharma. So we start, you know, with ankle deep, right? And then over time we begin to gain depth and understanding. Another um, description, it's something like, as if a eight-year-old was to be, you know, taken to a foreign land, not knowing the language, slowly over time with formal or informal education, they would begin to understand. And how would that start? I mean, I've been to countries where I knew none of the language, right? And then even just through my own intellect, my understanding, my desire, I began to, oh, understand how to say hello, how to say thank you, you know, how to ask for the bathroom, how to you know, <coughs> say, where can I get some good tacos, you know, and so on. Actually, I was thinking about when I was traveling through Burma, didn't understand the language at all traveling through Laos, traveling through um, 
Thailand in like rural areas and India and just like, okay, like I have to be open and receptive to learn and understand, to communicate. In the same way, one will understand the Dharma. That's the kind of way it's thought. Yeah. Enough for today. Thoughts, questions, reflections. We have like five minutes. I think there's a hole in this cup. (laughs) (laughs) It's like leaving piles of water. Works good enough. Please, um, Mike. I was just curious, um, the author of the book that you have there. The this one? Yeah. This is called The Teachings of the Buddha. Uh, it's edited by Jack Cornfield. It's it's a great book. I was at a um, retreat with Jack Cornfield years ago, and uh, he kept reading out of the book, and I was like, exactly, like, what's that book? And then I got, I got the courage to like go up at the end of the retreat and ask him. But yeah, he um, compiled, you know, all of these just really useful. It's basically my like teacher's guidebook. It's my handbook. And it uh, has, there's a few different versions, but yeah, it's just the teachings of the Buddha. You can probably get it on, you know, one of those places. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you exclude anger or pain. Well, because I know that I'm delusional. Okay. When yeah. my thinking is delusional. Uh huh. Of course, now I'm curious. I want to know. <laughs> I want to know more about what you mean by that. Uh, but we don't have time for that. So I'm, I'll give you the like because that, that was kind of a big question. And delusion is very deceptive. Um, there's different ways that people talk about delusion. It's talked about as ignorance. It's talked about as um, – so ignorance is maybe a better way. Like when we're not – but the, 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 the other way of just talking about delusion is to say we're not seeing things clearly. We're not seeing things as they are. So the three examples, we're not recognizing suffering as suffering, right? We're just seeing it as like, why is this happening to me? Or we're just in the like, anger or in the pain, right? Pain is the reality of things. Suffering is the layer that we get, get caught in or cling to of thinking it should be different, right? That's one way. The other way in which we're all delusional uh, is believing that, that permanence exists. What is permanent? We all 
here's another here here's a, a even a, a simpler example because I really I'm getting a little kind of esoteric right master idea the sky is blue the sky is not blue that's a delusion that we all share we look at the sky oh and then we think it's beautiful the sky is not blue the sky is just clear it's just the sky and then there's weather and then there's the reflection of the sun off the ocean you know environmental science right but most of us still we believe that the sky is blue the third major delusion um, is this idea um, that we are a solid fixed permanent self these are kind of the larger examples but i tell you what if you come back i'll give you more minute examples okay and 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 the other reality is that um oh here's a delusion we all should be happy all the time that's a delusion it's not that it's not obtainable but the idea of happiness versus contentment is very different and so from the buddhist perspective but we have we have this delusion that's been you know uh perpetuated that we're supposed to be happy all the time we have I don't know. That was like that was a quick draw. I don't know. There was both of you, um, and and we're at, and we're, at, we're and we're actually out of okay out of delusion um, that we deserve X Y Z that we deserve. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I deserve. Yeah. Are you gonna add a delusion? I, I, I was uh, the quote you put on Instagram about noticing. Mm. Um, better to notice. Uh, for one day than live a hundred years without and so mm -hmm. the delusion is uh, I've been thinking about this a lot that when you have anxiety or depression or negative thinking during the day like oh I shouldn't have that mm -hmm. right that mm -hmm. that's delusional that if you mm -hmm. can sit and notice oh this this mind state this emotion arises it leaves the next one comes it arises it leaves some of them are happy some of them are content some of them yeah. are anxious some are depressed and that that recognizing that noticing those changes and that they come like that and that they're all day that if you don't notice that that that's delusional uh-huh right. right yeah yeah which is like the ever-changing all yeah. things but it's hard to appreciate like that, that when yeah. you're sitting in your living room anxious absolutely yeah. yeah so um more will be revealed thank you so much for your time and attention and just to say a few things um there is a bowl at the on the desk at the door. That bowl represents the monk's bowl. Actually, is a monk's bowl, and um, is for donation that we run on the donation of those who attend. It's a pay it forward kind of uh, practice. Yeah, the black one. So uh, suggested fifteen dollar donation. Uh, of course, whatever you can afford is good enough. If you can afford more, great. If you can afford, if you can't afford that much, that's fine too. Um, the word is dana, which means generosity, and we are sustained off the generosity of those who attend. Same thing for you at home. You can click on the donation button. You also can just be a monthly donator. You can just uh, 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 you can just donate monthly to help kind of just now we then we know every month oh yeah there's we're gonna get have, have this much 
um, is helpful. Uh, but if we don't, then, you know, maybe we'll just disappear. It's okay. <laughs> it's a reality. It's a reality. No, I'm, I'm serious. Like, just, so there's also a Venmo uh, that's next to the bowl if you don't have any cash. Thank you all for those who are attending both here and in the future world on YouTube. Thank you for attending. Hopefully this was helpful. May all the goodness of our practice be dedicated to the freedom from suffering for all beings. That we don't only do this work to free our own hearts and minds, but we, we do this work, we follow this path to help all beings be free from suffering. May we all be free. Thanks so much. You can help. See you guys. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.